everybody. Good to see you all. Good to, it's been so good to hear the stories from new folks as they're, as they're joining us. We had some in our earlier service a couple weeks ago. We'll have some next week as well. Uh, my name is Stephen. I have the privilege of serving as the lead pastor here. Uh, it's good to see some of you, uh, some of you for the first time. Uh, some of you, I've, my only experience of you has been mediated by a screen. So uh, y'all look good. It's good to see you. Uh, we have been looking at the letter to the Ephesians, and it's about this family that God is bringing together called the church. And specifically, as we get into the heart of it, of what Paul is saying this family looks like, and he prays at the end of chapter 1 that the hearers of this letter would see God's power spilling out into the world. As we get into chapter 2, the first demonstration of that is, as Daryl preached last week, that God restores us, wakens us to himself. The vertical dimension of God's grace restores us to relationship with him, allows us to rule and reign with him. And then in verse 11, he transitions to the horizontal plane of how this good news spills out into every corner of the world, even into the hostilities that divide us from one another. These ethnic, racial, tribal barriers that we naturally throw up are dismantled by the cross. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 11. Therefore, that is in light of all that I've said about God's mercy wakening himself to you. Remember that you formerly who are Gentiles by birth and called the uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple to the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And now, Almighty God, we ask that by your spirit, you would give us the gift of hearing and of proclaiming your word so that we would not simply be hearers, but doers. 
We pray this in the name of him who is our peace, Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Well, a few weeks before I started seminary, back in 2002, I asked my wife, Jill, on our first date. Uh, This is actually a little bit of a subject of controversy between the two of us because she says it was not a date. Doesn't matter who is right and who is wrong about that. Um, one thing I will say, though, uh, you know, if, if for those of you particularly on the younger end of things, if you ask a girl out and she does not know that you were on a date, you're not doing it right. <laughs> Got to work on your game. Uh, well, anyway, by the end of this night, I knew that I was in a little bit of trouble because I knew that I was moving 3,000 miles away to go to school, uh, and I knew that because I would be a student again, I was going to be broke. And broke... And in love, not a good combination. Broke and in love and 3,000 miles away is just mean. And so, uh, before too long, I I knew that I was going to have to heed the words of that great theologian, Beyonce, and put a ring on it. But because I was broke, that meant that I was going to have to sell my most prized possession, which at the time was a vintage Guild Bluesbird guitar. But I happily did that, sold it on eBay, walked with my cash into Hamilton Jewelers on Nassau Street in Princeton and plunked down the money and said, hey, I have been taking stealthily, taking notes about what kind of setting to put it in and what kind of cut to look for. And so the jeweler did what jewelers have been doing for generations. He did not just hand me the ring and say, what do you think? No, he, he brought out this black velvet box And he set the ring down inside of it so that against that black background, the four C's would pop. Well, I think that's what Paul is doing right here in Ephesians, particularly in chapter 2 in verses 1 through 10. He is laying out the black velvet of our sin so that we could see the brilliance of God's grace because we cannot know the fullness of God's grace without knowing the fullness of our sin. And because of your sin, he says to the Ephesians, you were by nature rebellious. You were objects of love for sure, but deserving of God's wrath. If you haven't been to the church in a while, you're just coming back after being away, you hear words like sin and wrath, and you're like, man, I did not choose the right Sunday to come. At the very least, you might be wondering, how can God's love and God's anger be in the same place? If you're asking that question, you don't have kids. Um, But they're not opposites. As the the great author and Holocaust survivor Elie Wiesel once put it, the only thing worse than hate is indifference. So Paul writes in Romans 1 that the worst thing God could do is turn us away and leave us to our own devices. And so no, his, his love is working out to restore us. But God is... Great in mercy, Paul writes. It is a mercy greater than our sin. And he wants the Ephesians to see that though they were dead in their transgressions, they are now made alive in Christ. It is by grace that you are saved. It is this active and ongoing thing. And, and, And this is through faith and not by works. It is a gift of God, lest any of you boast about it. 
And if you've been hanging out in the church for a while, uh, this is all a reminder to you that God has opened the door of reconciliation toward us so that no matter where we have been, no matter where we have come from, no matter what pain has been caused to us or pain that we have caused to others, those things do not define us. We are defined by God's love and God's mercy toward us. Through faith, we have access to him in Christ. Every gift of heaven is on offer to those who trust in him. I've got to tell you, I've heard a lot of sermons in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, the part that Daryl preached on last week. Uh, you are God's handiwork. You are God's poema in the Greek. You are God's poetry. You are God's craftsmanship. You were created on purpose. You were created for a purpose to do good works that he has laid out for you from the foundation of time. It is this hopeful passage. It is this beautiful passage about what God desires for us. But Paul does not stop with that soaring definition in verse 10. There's more to the story that he wants to, to get at as though now it, it's up for us to discover what those good works are. No, he says, I'm going to tell you what those goods are. He wants to show us how this, this good news about how these hearts that are renovated by the gospel spill out from the personal into every corner of the world, even into the divisions and the hostilities that keep us from one another. Sometimes the chapter divisions are not really helpful and, and this is one of those cases because it's not as though Paul is sitting there in prison and his line of thinking changes and he's, he's like, what, what can I write about? I know, ethnic hostility, that's a good one. And so if, if verses 1 through 10 describe this vertical plane of the gospel, what God has done to restore us to himself, then in verse 11 when he starts with therefore, he's, he's moving on in 11.22 to describe the horizontal plane of the gospel. This is how God uses a reconciled people to be agents of reconciliation in the world so that in light of God's grace to you, you can see how that grace is transforming the world around you. First, the personal dimension of God's grace. Then the social dimension of God's grace. He does not stop with God's grace to you. You have been saved, he goes on. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body, to reconcile both of them to God to the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He's actually giving us a little bit of a case study here with Jewish and Gentile tension, these, these two groups that exist in a state of hostility toward one another. Right off the bat, he talks about how the Jewish followers of Jesus have created this us and them distinction with the Gentile believers, referring to them as the uncircumcised. This was not the kind of thing that a Gentile would just say about themselves. It's, it's, it's meant to be a sort of derogatory, a, a, a those ones over there. 
In fact, even Gentile is a word that creates an us and them distinction because in the Hebrew mindset, there were only two kinds of people. There were people of the covenant and there was everybody else. And so the word for Gentile, whenever you see it in the New Testament, is simply the word ethne. Just like our mission partner in Clarkston, it's the word from which we get ethnicity. And so ethne in the Bible could be Greek, it could be Macedonian, it could be Roman, it could be Ethiopian, Tibetan. The one thing, despite all of those ethnicities that are out there, the one thing that they had in common is that they were not the people of Israel. As Paul writes in verse 12, they were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship to Israel, foreigners to the covenant, without hope and without God in the world. So Paul wants to start out by reminding these Gentile Christians of how powerful God's mercy is in restoring them to himself and also to be patient with your Jewish brothers and sisters who have been running this race with God for a long time. But this word hostility comes up twice and Paul describes as the focal point of this hostility the law with its commands and its regulations. This is a deep irony because Isaiah 42 describes how through the covenant the people of Israel were to be a light to the nations. But it goes back even further than that, back to the beginning of the story. God blesses Abraham so that Abraham can be a blessing to the nations. The the covenant is meant to be an example to the nations. Isaiah speaks of God's heart to gather all of the nations together to participate in God's glory. And, And Jeremiah envisions all nations streaming together to worship in Jerusalem. Jesus tells his disciples to go to all the nations. And then in Revelation, at the end of the story we see this picture of all nations all tribes all people gathered around the throne of the lamb in worship of the one true God from the very beginning of God's story God's desire is to gather all ethnicities into one family. And Israel was given this gift of the law and the covenant to shape them into being the kind of people who were capable of welcoming all people. And so what was meant to be a blessing to the nations has instead become a source of hostility to the nations. Something really human about this. Uh, Tim Keller points out that when God gives good gifts, there is something about human nature that just causes us to look at that gift and to hold it up as an absolute and to say, this is the gift that matters, to, to elevate the one that has the gift and to look down on the ones who don't have that gift. Uh, this good gift becomes a, a basis for hostility. This is true of individuals. But it's also true of groups of people, maybe particularly true of groups of people, cultures, races, classes of people. Left to our own devices, the way that we form an identity, the way that we define ourselves, the way that we get our self-worth is by taking what is good about us, what is distinct and lifting it up and then taking a look at everybody else who's not like that and saying, thank God I'm not like them. 
We get an identity by defining ourselves against others. In our house, we put up these yard signs and not those yard signs. The village that I lived in in Northern Ireland, there were two churches. Uh, Two churches for a town of like maybe 400 people. Uh, In each of the churches, you could fit 500 people. So I just had one day, I was just curious, like I asked one of the, the church members, like, got to tell me, like, why, what, why are there two churches here? Why does this doesn't make sense to me? And he just kind of smiled at me and he said, oh, you got to have two churches, Stephen. You got to have the one you belong to and the one you avoid. It's like, no wonder you guys have been fighting for 300 years. But there's a ring of truth to that. We take what is good about who we are, we we lift it up, we make it an absolute and say, that is where I get my identity. I've had the pleasure of doing a lot of premarital counseling over the years. Uh, I was originally going to say I've had the pleasure of doing a lot of weddings over the years, but if I'm being perfectly honest with you, I'm kind of a little bit ambivalent about the wedding part of it. Uh, usually by the time the wedding comes, I feel like, like I've done all the heavy lifting here. I've done all my work. And now when I'm here as the pastor, all these people are just seeing me as an obstacle to the open bar. <laughs> so weddings, eh, premarital counseling, love it. I love uh, being with these couples who are optimistic and who are so, so rose-colored when they look out at each other and they, they think that, you know, our love is enough to sustain us. Whatever life throws at us, we're going to be okay. And I, and I get to work with them for four or five sessions and show them just how wrong they are. And one of the couples that stands out the most to me was this guy who came from this big, loud, Sicilian Catholic family and his fiancée who came from a more reserved Korean-American Presbyterian family. And I was going to be 10 minutes late to our first session, so I asked my assistant if she would let them in. And in my office, I had kind of this way it was set up. I had a love seat, and then I had two chairs separated by a table in between them. And almost always when this happened, if I was late or something like that, the couples would come and they would sit down on the love seat and kind of stare at each other and, you know, giggle and all that stuff. And then I'd come in late and they'd be like, oh. And the guy would be like, I don't want to be here. <laughs> but this couple was totally different. Like, the guy was sitting down on the love seat and his fiancée was sitting in a chair, but it looked like she had actually moved the chair about five feet back. And so I was like, okay, we've got something to work on here. Come to find out that um, over the next few sessions, he was desperately trying to figure out why she would not engage with him in conflict. Whenever he would kind of, you know, ask her about something, she would just get super quiet. And then he would get mad and he would leave. He would just kind of go to the gym or whatever to kind of blow off steam. And then he'd come back. Well, in his family, his dad was the son that everything orbited around. His dad was loud, he was gregarious, he was funny, he had this big personality, big emotions, big passions. If, if, if he and, and, uh, and his wife got into a fight, everybody knew about it. The neighbors knew about it. The house was just loud. So for him... It's like, that, well, that's how you do conflict. 
That's how you communicate. You, you, you have it out. This is my family. This is my culture. This is what's right. And so every time he tried to pull close by having it out, she would just kind of pull away. And she, on the other hand, grew up in a second-generation Korean-American family. Her dad was a very hard worker, very driven. He demanded excellence, and he was kind of somewhat detached. And when dad yelled, it was always a sign of disapproval and shame. It was like that with her. It was like that with her sister and their mother. And then in her teenage years, her dad had an affair, and he was gone for a year. Gone from her life completely. And their parents eventually reconciled, and her, she and her father, they worked through kind of their own reconciliation process, but she had learned to associate yelling with disapproval, disapproval with shame, shame with hiding, hiding with unfaithfulness. And so every time he left to go to the gym to blow off steam, she never knew if he was going to come back. So then the question became, how are you going to do a new thing? If you're going to cling to your family of origin, his culture of origin, then hold that up as right. He was going to miss what she really needed, which was to to know that she was loved, to know that she was valued, to know that she was secure. And if she was going to cling to her family of origin and see in him the wounds of her father, she was going to punish him for trying, however imperfectly it was, from trying to draw close to her. In a sort of way, I think that's actually what Paul is getting at with the Ephesians. The question of how the gospel bridges racial, cultural, and ritual divides to create a new family is one of the major themes that runs throughout the New Testament. And Paul's argument is that the gospel of Jesus is both vertical and horizontal. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so, he is saying here to the Ephesians that you cannot claim that God has reconciled you to himself and not live in reconciled relationships with one another, holding up your ethnic markers, your history, and saying that these are the way to be right. Clinging to these old ways of racial and ethnic enmity, this is not compatible with the kingdom of God. Christ has put it to death in the cross. You are going to have to learn how to be different. The church in Ephesus is actually one that Paul planted himself. You can read about it in Acts 19 and 20. And it started almost in the midst of a riot. Because at the same time that Paul was drawing these Macedonian worshipers away from the temple of Artemis, making the Gentiles furious at him, he was also uh, having the Jewish leaders plot against him because he was drawing away members of the synagogue to have table fellowship with these uncircumcised Greeks. He was getting it from both ends. And yet, all throughout the book of Acts, when Paul goes into a new place, he first goes into the synagogue. He, he goes with his fellow brothers and sisters, and he, he wants to unroll the scroll with them. He wants to show them what God has done in Jesus. But then right after that, he goes to where the Gentiles are. 
In Acts 17, he goes to Mars Hill. He speaks to the philosophers. He uses their own sayings. He uses their own culture to describe to them what God has done in Jesus. In Corinth, he goes to the house of a prominent Greek and the whole family is baptized. And in Ephesus, he goes to the hall of Tyrannius. And for two whole years, he proclaims the gospel and many come to believe. But now he's got a problem. Because these two groups who have come to faith in Jesus cannot stand each other. These two groups, each of them believe that their own history, their own culture, their own way of being in the world is superior to the other one. And now they've got to learn how to live not as foreigners and strangers, but as brothers and sisters in the household of God. And there was a lot working against him in doing this because there was this great temple to Artemis in Ephesus and it had walls and it meant to keep the Greeks in and the Jews out. The temple in Jerusalem had walls meant to keep the Jews in and the Greeks out and archaeologists have actually uncovered one of those walls and it bore this inscription, let no foreigner enter within the parapet and the partition which surrounds the temple precincts. Anyone caught violating will be accountable for his ensuing death. Inside that temple, it had walls within those walls that kept the women separated from the men. It kept the outer court separated from the inner court. It kept a a great, great veil that separated the holy of the holies, protecting the sacred from the profane. And so, yeah, Paul could have had justification in leaving all of those dividing walls up. He could have followed all of the best practices of church planning that came out in the 80s and 90s that said, find your demographic, cater to your demographic. He could have planted one church on the Jewish side of town and another one on the Gentile side of town. It would have been practical. But it would have been a church that resurrected the walls that Christ came to destroy. All those walls ever did is create strangers, Greeks, stranger to the worship of Jews, Jews, strangers to the worship of Greeks, all of them strangers to the holiness of God. So Paul tells these Jews and these Gentiles, you cannot have two churches because you share one faith, one Lord, one baptism, and the gospel has the power to bridge these racial, ethnic, cultural divides. And so you need to flesh out horizontally what Christ has already accomplished in you vertically. You need to be reconciled. A a church where all ethnicities, all races worship the king together is one of the most powerful witnesses to the truth of the gospel. And it makes what Paul writes in verse 19 a reality when he says, Consequently, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with God's people, members of his household, a new temple that God dwells in, and he builds that temple by bringing you together into this place where God's justice is carried out by the justified. So this idea of racial reconciliation is not new. It is as old as the gospel itself. It is the evidence of God transforming the world. There's been a lot of conversation in our culture this year about the racialized divisions in North America. There have been a lot of ways to have this conversation. Maybe the most dominant form in our culture is through the lens of anti-racism or 
critical race theory or the rubric of intersectionality. Other people come at it from history, from, uh, from politics, and, and while there are certainly some insights to be gained, a lot of these secular attempts at justice, they exist because they are an attempt to plug a gap that the church has left wide open. But for those of us who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus, our default setting to come at reality is to come at it through the lens of Scripture and primarily through the lens of the gospel itself. Biblical scholar N.T. Wright recently wrote a very brief response to an editorial in which the writer accused the church in the UK of succumbing to secular cultural pressures by renewing its efforts to promote racial justice. And after describing the the charge in Romans to practice hospitality across social and ethnic barriers, he captures the essence of Paul's teaching in Ephesians when he writes this. This is the three-dimensional meaning of justification by faith. All those who believe in Jesus, rescued by his cross and resurrection and enlivened by his spirit, are part of the new family. This was and is central, not peripheral. The church was the original multicultural project with Jesus as its only point of identity. It was known and was for this reason seen as both attractive and dangerous. As a worship-based, spiritually renewed, multi-ethnic, polychrome, mutually supportive, outward-facing, culturally creative, chastity-celebrating, socially responsible, fictive kinship group, gender-blind in leadership, generous to the poor, and courageous in speaking up for the voiceless. If this had been taught and celebrated and practiced, the church would early on have recognized ecclesial racism for what it is, the ugly side effect of splitting the church into language groups and thence into national churches, preparing the way for and disarming the church against the self-serving racial theories of social Darwinism. And this is the part where it hits home. If it has taken modern secular movements to jolt the church into recognizing a long-standing problem, shame on us. The answer is teaching and practicing the whole biblical gospel. Friends, there are a lot of ways throughout our history that both the church and our culture have resurrected walls that Christ has torn down. So a few months ago, our session adopted a charter to form a race and biblical justice team, members from within all souls that are going to help us find new relationships across the city, to help us respond faithfully to the challenges that we face, and to help us see how central racial reconciliation is to the gospel itself. And the question of how are we going to respond is how we have always responded through worship, through relationship, through service. And in some ways, I imagine what that's going to look like is an awful lot like that, cult, that couple in premarital counseling, setting aside some aspects of our identity that we elevate to an absolute, listening to the pain of the other and learning to bear that pain, eventually valuing what the other needs more than what you want and trusting that they are going to do the same. That's how family works. I want to wrap up with this image that Paul gives us of the 
power that the gospel has to transform the world. He says that the cross of Jesus is creating one new humanity. And there are two words that are used in the Greek whenever uh, describing something new. The first is neos. This is kind of like the latest edition of a thing. But the other one, and the one that Paul uses here, is kainos. It's a word maybe best uh, summarized by the category of invention. This is something new coming into the world. And so neos is the latest purple iPhone 12 But Kainos is Alexander Graham Bell making that very first phone call. Neos is the morning paper fresh off the press. Kainos is Johannes Gutenberg pulling off the first page of Genesis from the Gutenberg press. Neos is the latest SpaceX rocket. Kainos is Yuri Gagarin leaving the planet and going into the atmosphere. It is a category shifting thing. Something new coming into the world. Something meant to blow your mind. And Paul is saying that's what the church is. One new humanity. I think we need to be in the business of allowing God to blow people's minds again. On the other side of this crazy year, how many of your neighbors, your friends, the places where you work are saying that they are longing for something new? And not just the next thing, a whole new category. Don't get me wrong, we can never be a church for everyone. I mean, most of us only speak one language. I know I do. The question is, how do we allow the Spirit to stretch us so that God's justification spills out into our relationships, into our neighborhoods, into our places of work? How can we be a place for all souls where in the cross of Christ there are no more strangers? Where God is healing up the broken and divided pieces in us so that we can take part in his healing the broken and divided places of the world. So that we can see And know the reality that Christ is making all things new. Now as we come to the table, we see this reminder of the end of the story when all nations, all tribes are gathered around the throne in worship and the images of a wedding feast. So as we come to this table... Let us pray. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered his disciples together. And when he was with them, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, This is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat all of you. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and poured it out, saying, This is my cup, the new covenant shed in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Take all of you and drink of it. And so it is that whenever we eat of this bread and we drink of this cup, we are proclaiming his dying until he comes again.
So friends, as we come, let us proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Come friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Take and eat, drink and remember and rejoice and be made new. Amen.